0: Welcome to the Hackersplode podcast. Uh, welcome to the podcast, everyone. Uh, today I am with Barrett Brown, a journalist, activist, and the founder of Pursuance. So he has written for various publications, including the Daily Beast, Vanity Fair, Huffington Post, and the Guardian, to name a few. So uh, if you could go ahead and introduce yourself uh, for those of uh, for those of us here who uh, haven't heard of you or this is the first time they're hearing of you?
1: Yes, uh, so I'm a journalist. Uh, my, my, my profession was that of a journalist. Uh, as I got a little bit older, uh, around 2008, 2009, I became increasingly disenchanted with journalism. Uh, it was not, in my mind, fulfilling the kind of uh, change and, and uh, the, the negative feedback effect that it's supposed to play in a republic especially a complex one. And so I became more and more interested in activism, uh, something that I previously had no interest in whatsoever. Uh, I had seen some other extraordinary things coming out of the anonymous movement, uh, for instance. Uh, for instance, their Church of Scientology campaign, which was very effective and very uh, very original and novel. Uh, and I started writing about them, and eventually I was approached by one of the uh, sort of key figures in that community and asked to come help with the Tunisian Revolution, which uh, several uh, anonymous participants were actually Tunisian nationals who were heavily involved in that, uh, so worked on that for a while. We got into this bizarre running conflict with uh, the U.S. governments over that and over the uh, surveillance of our of our work by government contractors, and things proceeded from there. I started specializing in, in uh, crowdsource research of these uh, these sort of illicit, privatized intelligence contracting firms, and uh, eventually went to prison over it. And now I'm out and starting something called the Pursuance Project.
0: Um, all right, so uh, when it comes down to uh, your role with Anonymous, um, many have uh, coined you as sort of the face of Anonymous. What do you th- uh, what, what's your response to that?
1: Well, Anonymous is like a, a horde of, uh, you know, 8th century Central Asian horseback uh, tribes. It, 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 sometimes you'll have someone who, who uh, holds influence over a great deal of it or over some full portion of it. But there's no structure, there's no charter whereby to, to actually uh, decide who is a leader and who is a spokesperson and all that. So th- those were titles I never held. I did serve in some capacity as sort of a media liaison between uh, certain factions of Anonymous uh, out of a server called a non-ops that was very active in, again, the Tunisian Revolution, uh, the uh, crowdsourced investigation into the uh, intelligence contracting world, and a few other uh, projects. I was close to. And I worked on some of those projects as well. Uh, this, this went on for about a period of about a year. Uh, at the same time, I was running my own group, Project PM, which uh, uh, was originally intended to create something a little bit like what I'm now trying to build, Pursuance, which is a, a collaborative civic network, but uh, eventually became a, sort of the, uh, the venue by which we did this crowdsourced investigation. So I, I had a complicated uh, relationship with various parts of Anonymous. I was often portrayed in the press as either the spokesperson for Anonymous or the self-appointed spokesperson, which was ironic because they were the ones that gave me the title to begin with uh so it's all very amorphous anonymous was a very amorphous thing which was which was part of the reason it worked and part of the reason it eventually sort of collapsed into you know just nonsense is what it is now uh and, and there's a lot of important lessons from that period and from that from that movement uh about uh the ways in which people can come together around the world uh into a some kind of shared space and develop some kind, some degree of working relationship and very quickly and effectively and uh, and bring novel approaches to bear on old problems and new ones alike. And so those are the kind of things that uh, pulled me in there to begin with that really interested me uh, from the get-go and which I'm still interested in now.
0: Um, that's uh, that's very interesting. So, uh, again, when uh, just coming back uh, a bit to the uh, whole idea of Anonymous, you mentioned that you had some involvement uh, with, in, with or in the Tunisian revolution. Could you uh, share some light uh, on that?
1: Uh, yes. Uh, it was actually, it was when that had just kicked off uh, and Anonymous uh, had gotten involved directly uh, by several means, I'll describe in a moment. Uh, Greg House, who was the person who had originally approached me about Anonymous a year prior and who I had been sort of talking with at that time, uh, he was aware of a piece I had written of uh, Huffington Post about Anonymous a year prior in which I kind of predicted that they were going to someday challenge nation states and be involved in actual revolutions. And uh, so he knew that was something I was interested in. And so he said, you know, why not come over here and uh, work on this? Uh, at the point I arrived, uh, and this is my first real experience with Anonymous as such, although I was, I was familiar with the old 4chan boards from which Anonymous kind of uh, was incubated out of. But uh, at, that, so at that time they were doing uh, a number of attacks on the Tunisian government's infrastructure uh, to assist, to sort of aid the the, uh, the uh, insurrection. Uh, they were providing different strips to some of the movement organizers who were at that point being phished, uh, you know, PH. Uh, fished uh, by the governments in order to identify and uh, separate, uh, you know, significant uh, leaders of that movement uh, in the country. Uh, there's a couple things they were already doing. Uh, what I did was uh, oversaw the creation of a of a guide called the Guide to Protecting the Tunisian Revolution. That was later the title was later changed to Protecting the Arab Revolution as the Tunisian Revolution spread and became the Arab Spring. Uh, using tips and information from people who had been involved in similar uprisings and similar people's movements, you know, over the past 30, 40 years, kind of pletting that, getting it translated into uh, Arabic uh, and French. And uh, besides that, my most important role there was was sort of interfacing with the press on that. The thing about the Tunisian Revolution was uh, it was not noticed at all, except for one uh, little piece in The Guardian Uh about a week after it had started, it, it was basically invisible uh, to the West and, and most, much of the rest of the world. So, being a longtime journalist with, with some contacts who were much more prominent than I was, uh, I was able to uh, bring attention to it and ensure that the attention uh, was going to be in the right way. As in, there was there was a, a major uh, there was a major effort, particularly by U.S. conservatives who were generally generally anti-Muslim. Uh, to to cast this as a Islamic revolution, uh, as an Islamic fundamentalist revolution, which it clearly was not, uh, and uh, so it was important that we make sure that that that, that meme did not, uh, you know, take hold of the narrative outside because that that's a dangerous situation for the Tunisians themselves. Uh, so anyway, so so. Uh, Another very interesting thing about that is, is the first articles that did appear in the, in the West about the Tunisian Revolution were solely about Anonymous, after we had gotten Michael Hastings, uh, my old journalist friend, to tweet about this. Uh, Talked about the Anonymous assisting, did not seem to realize that there was an actual, actual revolution. They just saw that t- Anonymous was taking down websites and then replacing them with messages to support the Indonesian people. Uh, that's how poorly uh, covered it was, was at first. And so, a lot of my so the stuff I did that's most important was the least visible stuff in terms of uh, sort of background, getting journalists in touch with organizers down there, ensuring that they got their message out. Uh, all right. So, so
0: that is uh, very interesting. In uh, again, in regards to uh, the the way it was uh, covered uh, in the West, uh, this is the Tunisian Revolution. So, uh, again, in. Um, in terms of uh, your involvement with, uh, with Anonymous during the Tunisian Revolution, uh, were, they, uh, w- were there reports of you supporting them in any way uh, in the sense that you were using, for example, uh, as I've just been checking around, uh, the, uh, the whole idea of uh, leaking emails that were hacked uh, later on?
1: Well, that was something that happened very organically. Uh, the, 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 obviously later on anonymous or contingent of anonymous uh, were involved in leaking emails from uh, different governments in the Middle East uh, and I, I myself later uh, was involved uh, I think in late 2011 along with Jeremy Hammond uh, in the Bahrainian uh, uh, movement uh, for democracy uh, and that's actually something that's mentioned in my uh, in the DOJ's uh, you know criminal complaints against me they, they say that quote I had a uh, plotted to attack the the government of Bahrain. Unquote. So, which is a bizarre thing to be uh, challenged on by a supposed republic. Uh, at anyway, uh, anyway. So that was something that you know we we I got additional time in prison for. Uh, but one of the one of the attacks that Jeremy Hammond, the hacker that I worked with on some of these things, uh, pulled off was against a firm in the U.S. that sold uh, military-grade tear gas to the Bahraini regime. But regarding the email thing, the, the, the heat, hacking and leaking of emails, uh, that didn't start, to my knowledge, uh, with Tunisia. It started a few weeks after that when this other firm called H.B. Gary Federal, which is one of these intelligence contracting firms that, that are proliferated in the U.S. since uh, 2001, uh, run generally run by ex-military people, ex-intelligence people, and, and generally maintaining ties and working with uh, the U.S. government and others. Uh, it came to light that the head of this company had uh, he went he went to, he went to uh, Financial Times and kind of bragged that he had infiltrated Anonymous uh, the anonops sort of the main IRC server and 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 uh, you know and and managed to to identify our you know so called leaders that he referred to with, with terms like lieutenants and stuff that just don't exist. Uh, a lot of the information that he gave to Financial Times was, was clearly wrong. Even people with only a limited knowledge of Anonymous could have told it was wrong. And the next day, several hackers uh, they hacked. Uh, his server, and stole all of his emails, uh, including emails between him and the U.S. government, him and other companies like Palantir that have since since become uh, more influential. Uh, and, ex- and in doing so, exposed this very uh, very bizarre and very indefensible scheme. You know, uh, to, to on to, sort of a totally unrelated thing uh, to go after WikiLeaks, to go after uh, contributors to WikiLeaks, uh, to go after left wing activist groups in the U.S., including very mainstream you know, sort of left-wing, anti-U.S. Chamber of Commerce groups that are like watchdog organizations. They had all of these bizarre plots, including DDoS attacks, of the same sort that, by that time, uh, 50 uh, U.S. households had been raided by the FBI uh, for having performed against Visa and MasterCard. Uh, as you can tell, it's a long and nuanced story, but that's basically the gist of it. And, and it was that hack that occurred sort of out of nowhere after it turned out we were being surveilled in our support for the Tunisian Revolution. Uh, that launched uh, a lot of us on this path of investigating these uh, these firms, trying to figure out what what else they were doing, you know, who they were, what kind of danger they presented, and later on, uh, we were able to successfully expose several more programs, including Roma's Coin, which was also a uh, sort of propaganda and surveillance apparatus directed at the Arab world that we still don't understand entirely. It's very multifaceted, but uh, so there was a lot there was a lot going on, you know, over that over 2011. Um, yeah. That
0: that makes a lot of sense now, especially um, when you talk about uh, the fact that uh, you were under surveillance. Uh, did you have any idea when this began, especially for you, uh, on a personal level?
1: There was two. Well, there's two sorts of surveillance that was going on. The first was uh, from Aaron Barr himself, this HB Gary Federal, who was working on behalf of a larger consortium of firms, uh, the DOJ overseeing it. Uh, But we were peripheral to his main project, which was that Team Themis conspiracy that people can can read about. There was a number of articles that came out about it. uh, And I I wrote about it quite a bit at the time for The Guardian. Uh, Then there was another form of more uh, official surveillance that that the FBI uh, started on me with a few weeks after my role in uh, going after intelligence contractors uh, became clear to them, uh, after after these initial revelations, uh, which the press picked up on pretty quickly. I, I was I was known to them to be calling up former employees of these companies, asking them for leads. Uh, they knew I was sending emails to these companies. Uh, the CEOs of these companies saw me, just as Aaron Barr did in his uh, his notes and his conversations that were later leaked, uh, as uh, someone who was very much beating the drum uh, in words that one of those CEOs later used in another email, uh, for a conflict with this industry. Uh, I was giving. They also knew because they now had access to my email through the FBI. Uh, that I had been giving tips to other publications like uh, Bloomberg Business Week about firms like Endgame Systems, which they later wrote about and which was also involved in this Team Themis thing. Uh, there, 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 was a, there was just a lot, you know, uh, as you can dig in, it's a long story. It, it's, it's hard to summarize without going on a lot of uh, difficult details. But, but yes, so the, so the surveillance started at that point, and it was unceasing uh, up until my eventual arrest. Um, okay, so that uh, thank you
0: for that for clearing that up because again many people who uh, i have spoken to uh, in regards to this topic really don't understand uh, how exactly uh, the arrest was um, on what grounds it was made so uh, again if you uh, could kindly share some information in regards to what they arrested you for and uh, and and kind of how it all transpired
1: well, that's good of you, actually. Um, most of the uh, supposed mainstream journalists in this country, in England, uh, they just tend to, they don't understand it, but they just, they just guess something and write it down and, and print it. So it's good that you're, that you're interested in asking specifics. Uh, that's unusual. Um, so what happened was, uh, my first contact with the FBI as such be, was on March 6, uh, 2012. It was the same day in which uh, they had given Fox News an exclusive, announcing that a major anonymous hacker that I had worked with from time to time, uh, Sabu, whose real name is Hector Monsignor, uh, had been uh, turned by them, was working for the FBI, had had been for the past nine months. He had been secretly uh, raided. He'd been identified and uh, raided and threatened with 100 years or something like that of, of prison time. And, you know, it was between him cooperating with them and, and being able to take care of the, uh, his, his, uh, a child that his family had kind sort of bequeathed to him. So he was in a difficult position. But uh, at any rate, so that, that came out. And meanwhile, they were carrying out raids and arrests in England, uh, the U.S., and I believe possibly elsewhere that, on that day. Uh, I was not arrested that day. I was raided. They uh, served a search warrant. Uh, Michael Hastings later uh, published that at BuzzFeed. People can look at it. Uh, it it's it, The search warrant is very telling. It really explains what this is all about. The search warrant lists H.B. Gary, which we've mentioned as that firm that we exposed their uh, criminal activities with the DOJ. Uh, in-game systems, same thing. Uh, in-game systems also had to uh, eventually... Uh, changed their business practices, or at least uh, claimed to, after that business week piece came out and showed that they were secretly collecting backdoors and zero days uh, across the world, including in US allies, like airports in France, things that were very, very bizarre uh, undertaking. Uh, that was listed on my search warrant. The echelon2.org website, which was the wiki on which my group, Project PM, compiled our crowdsourced information uh, that we in Anonymous and Telecomics and other groups had found out about these companies. Uh, Project PM itself, the, the, the group in question, uh, InfraGard, which was a, another a sort of FBI-overseen uh, business alliance security deal that, that uh, I hadn't really been involved in investigating at that point. Uh, but anyway, so that, those that was what I was. That's what what they were after, and the search warrants, the secret search warrants that were filed, you know, unbeknownst to me, and that were made public during my my uh, ongoing case. Uh, that shows, you know, this started after HB Gary. That's what this is about. Uh, later on, they purely decided that it wasn't was not be wise to discuss HB Gary in any court setting. It's not something that they, that HB Gary would have wanted. It's not something they would have wanted. It's not something that that have resulted in any kind of conviction for me. On the other hand, it would have forced a lot of attention to these companies and what some of the things that they have been doing to me uh, in retaliation as they were working with the FBI. It was, it was again a very crazy ordeal. Uh, and but I was later uh, charged with this Stratford hack, uh, which had been carried out again partly by Jeremy Hammond partly by, uh, uh, originally by this group of of random criminal hackers who passed the hack on to other people who eventually got it to these uh, anti-sec people, sort of associated with Anonymous, and also by Sabu, the fellow who had been working with the FBI at the time. So there was a hack on this company, Strapper, which is another firm that does this intelligence contracting stuff. Uh, In this case, one of the things that came out of the emails taken from that raid, uh, one of the revelations was that Strapper provided... uh, uh, was committing espionage against uh, activists in Bhopal, India, uh, spying on them uh, uh, to on behalf of Union Carbide, uh, which of course wanted to, to uh, sort of keep an eye on those people who might, you know, want Union Carbide to pay more money for the people they, they killed and maimed in the 80s. Uh, just crazy, indefensible stuff, once again. Uh, other interesting that. At, any, at any rate, and, and those emails were eventually given to WikiLeaks. But, uh, so they charged me for copying and pasting a link. I had copied a link that Jeremy Hammond had pasted it in one of the anonymous chat rooms and I pasted it into my Project PM chat room thinking it was some of the emails. And it wasn't. Uh, it turned out to be credit card numbers. And the transcript shows that I didn't know, that I asked after I pasted the link, well, what was in that? And it was, you know, about one of the, some of the customer credit card numbers. And I didn't open it. The, US, the government's own forensics people uh, showed that, just like ours did. Never used any, never encouraged anyone to, the, the credit card numbers were already being used by Hammond and whoever else had control of them from the original criminal hack. Uh, well before uh, I had copied and pasted a link, but I was eventually, uh, f- uh, you know, I, I, I was charged, eventually, with that linking in uh, 22 years minimum prison on top of everything else I was charged with, which was uh, threatening an FBI agent, which I uh, did in, in in English, in common English language understanding, I did threaten that FBI agent because he was going after my mother, uh, but I did not threaten him illegally in accordance with the actual American statutes for threats, which requires that you uh, that, that, that requires that you, you know, make an imminent threat against someone. It's not a conditional. You have to say, I'm going to kill you, if you know, blah, blah, uh, which is not what I said. I said I was going to investigate this guy. Uh, I was going to investigate his family in the same way that Aaron Barr had, had uh, threatened to investigate activists uh, for his clients in the DOJ. So th- there was a, so there's a whole, it's understandable there's a lot of confusion around my case because it's been recorded in different ways. Different aspects have been, uh, uh, you know, different aspects have been highlighted in some cases, even when they're getting gotten correctly. There's more to it, and it's, it's hard to fit it all in, in a single, short news article. Uh, so, but, but the bottom line is that this was retaliation, It was, and it was recognized as retaliation by the New York Times, by the, by the uh, Washington Times, by pretty much every observer, uh, uh, journalistic uh, groups like uh, Reporters Without Borders, who reduced the U.S. press ranking like 11, 11 points that year, and partly because of my case. Everyone knew what this was about. This was about retaliating against me for my ongoing exposures of government-linked operations, many of which were illegal.
0: All right. So so that's uh, very, very interesting. And, of course, um, one of the most interesting things for me is when you talk about you being under surveillance, uh, again, uh, could you shed some light on what type of surveillance and if uh, any uh, that you could specify? Uh, Like, were were they ethical uh, by the people doing them? Or could you uh, maybe share some light on that? What types of surveillance they were doing, whether it be digital or uh, physical?
1: It seemed to me uh, mostly digital. And and of course, I I can only comment on the parts I know about. And I know that, I know two things. One of which is that they originally did, they did go to a judge and and legally got a search warrant. Now they did that uh, by providing them with information, the judge that was false and demonstrably false in some cases and in some cases it was crazy as in one of the one of the ways they got a search warrant was by pointing out that i had made a phone call to in-game systems one of these companies that had been spying on us and i'd asked them hey why are you spying on us and they put that in the search warrant and the judge didn't seem to find that suspicious that, that would be something that the fbi would need to investigate me for uh but anyway so they had search warrants and we know the exact dates of that you know i i found out you know while i was in jail waiting uh, waiting trial uh and then beyond that i don't know uh what else they may have done informally uh the thing about this uh, the doj in this case and the fbi in this case was that in addition to those things they also surveilled my donors to my legal defense fund uh and there's some articles about this people can see it's, it's another very interesting issue uh that they later got sued over uh they they subpoenaed uh WePay, which is some crowdfunding site uh and demanded and not with a real subpoena uh and, and, and outside of the normal uh, you know uh, mechanics of, of this thing, they uh, demanded all information about everyone who donated to me, uh, which was very unusual uh, and, and that later came out, and uh, a judge in northern Southern California uh, let that thing proceed uh, they they went and argued basically they tried to explain tried to say this was this was not malevolent that for some reason they needed that information uh, the judge so they clearly did not need that information. That was it was very bizarre. They had originally tried to seize that that uh, legal defense fund from me too. So but my point here is that, in addition to whatever normal uh, techniques that the FBI, uh, which FBI almost always uh, violates its bounds. I mean, it's, it's not it's not a very law-abiding organization, regardless of what uh, people are saying now that it's uh, uh, thankfully going after Trump. It uh, doesn't make it any better still, but uh. It, in addition to those things, I don't know what other informal uh, things they did. I, I do know a few a few items here and there. There was there was a couple of people that were paid by them or compensated in some way uh, that were uh, engaging in some sort of bizarre forms of harassment against me and my family uh, that went on for a number of months. And I happened to find out about that thanks to another email leak uh, of one of those people. Uh, they, just there was there was a lot of stuff that that you know I, I wish I could have at the time. Uh, got the press to pay attention to but the thing is when you have anything involving the internet and anything involving you know spies and cloak and dagger stuff it's very hard for people to take you seriously so i give up pretty quick on that uh you, you have to make a choice between am i going to be effective as a journalist am i going to continue to be effective and go on uh, tv programs and explain what these programs are and why they're dangerous and all that or am i going to spend all my time sort of cashing in my chips complaining and, and, and whining about uh you know harassment and surveillance and so that that's a tough decision that every whistleblower faces, every journalist uh, who who covers things and gets retaliated against uh, faces every day. And it's one of those things that just—it's—it's it's not easy to solve. But it's—it's it's one of those sort of important aspects, sort of behind the scenes uh, of these kind of things that that few people understand. Uh, It's—it's—it's—you know—it's—it's it's, it's one of the things I'll be writing about later on in this book I have coming out next year. But uh, it, it just. It's a very weird and kind of new phenomenon uh, that the degree to which the FBI and these companies will hire, you know, crazy people, essentially crazy people, to, to just to do the things that they can't do up close. Yeah, so uh, that makes a lot of sense. And
0: again, uh, just driving your point uh, when you talk about uh, the FBI using somewhat unethical methods. Do they still work within the boundary of the of, of the law? Uh, I'm not really that familiar with uh, the cyber uh, the cybercrime laws in in the states. But uh, what would you say that they operate uh, within that uh, the uh, the structure of law, um, especially in that domain?
1: I, I think uh, I don't know a lot about the uh, how the FBI differs in its investigations from from category to category of investigation. I do. I do. It is my understanding that in cyber, they are unusually uh, uh, likely to violate their own procedures and violate U.S. law and international law in some cases. The FBI has always been a troubled organization. I mean, it was founded by by an absolute maniac named uh, named uh, J. Edgar Hoover, who who was a troubled individual who who, who you know monitored and and uh, threatened Martin Luther King, uh, and it, the main headquarters is still named after this guy. Uh, it, it, it's gone after, it goes after activists. Has, it has a long history of doing that. In the, in the late seven, or early 70s, it was discovered to have been you know, engaging in this mass, I mean, really extraordinarily vast uh, campaign of surveillance and intimidation and, and harassment and sometimes uh, physical assault against uh, anti-war activists, civil rights activists. They were monitoring uh, literally every black college student in the country by policy, which, which I found hard to believe, too, but th- this is one of the things that has come out in the last five years. Uh, just insane stuff, and obviously it's a different organization now that it was. It's it's it, is, it, it certainly is not running anything as vast as that program, Quintel Pro, but it, it's never uh, it's never had to answer for itself, and it's always had the the uh, advantage of being seen by the ignorant as a really Boy Scout kind of organization, a very straight laced you know law abiding group. And it, and it there's some aspects of there's some personnel in there that are like that, and they do valuable important things like going after the mafia. Uh, as soon as J Edgar Hoover died, because J Edgar Hoover, of course, was protecting the mafia, uh, refusing to acknowledge their existence. So I mean, you can you can go on and on about about what kind of organization this is. It's it's always been fractured and and, just, and sort of uh, you know schizophrenic in some ways, and it's it's never had again. It's it's never had to really give an accounting of the things that it does, and so we're forced to rely on anecdotes. We're forced to rely on the studies we can do, and and those anecdotes and studies uh, do not cast it in a positive light. Okay so
0: again uh, from what you've explained it uh, it seems that um especially probably now uh, more than ever around the world the amount of data being gathered uh you know in in the name of uh, surveillance whether it be uh, legal or again um unethical is quite a lot and especially uh, just recently with the whole uh, Facebook data that was uh that was being used uh, to to alter or to influence uh you know big events like elections um what do you think is going to be the future of um of data especially when you talk about individuals and uh you know uh, when you talk about large amount of people uh, do you think that there is going to be any type of protection for the people from large organizations that do handle this type of data
1: well, that, well, that's what we're trying to establish in some ways with the Pursuance project, which, you know, very briefly, is this mass flame end-end encrypted mass framework for civic collaboration on a large scale uh, that we'll be launching soon, and we have a Kickstarter going on now for that. And there's there's a lot of uh, some articles uh, people can uh, see about what, what we're how we're doing this and what it's based on and who's involved. But uh, in general, uh, the it, it's things are going to get a lot worse. Uh, the reason is, you know. D- when the H.B. Gary emails came out, you know, the press was on it at first after, after you know, smaller outlets and, and me and other people did the hard work. Uh, they realized there was something big here and they they loved the story for a while It had that very interesting to them, a uh, very salacious hacking elements, which was still very novel at the time. Uh, and so they loved it. And, and some things got, you know, some things happened there. But uh, Congress tried to investigate it and that investigation got shot down uh, by a Republican uh, congressman down here in Texas. Uh you know, because he he is don- he has donations, uh, he gets donations from one of these same companies. Uh- and after that, the press kind of lost interest because they, they tend to do that. People in this country, uh, they 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 believe a story is over when it's been on for a couple of days or weeks or whatever. They don't. It's not when it's when it's been solved or when we've come to a place where the story has actually achieved anything. Uh, it has nothing to do with that. You have a lot of careerists. You have a lot of people who are incompetent, a lot of people who don't really understand what they're doing uh, in the press. And there's just like with the FBI, they don't have to really give an accounting to anybody. And that's that's kind of the problem. So without that, without that, you know, negative feedback of a cogent and uh, attentive press that can, that can sort of cover things to the logical conclusion, uh, it's going to be very, very difficult to uh, shine a light on even just the things that are already out there that we've already exposed, things like persona management, which involves the, the fabrication of fake online people that uh, CENTCOM later had to admit to doing after it came out of these same H. Gary emails. Uh, that's something that, that uh, given what everyone now realizes about the use of bots You know, real real simple, sort of just just basic bots on Twitter and stuff like that. Uh, That's something that can be that can be a a very powerful tool for for disinformation. Uh, It can be used to manufacture events, and and, uh, news is so event-driven that sophisticated enough actors, uh, right now, with 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 the technologies that we and methodologies that we know they have, that we've seen the patents for, that we've reported on, uh, those things are enough to disrupt things further. it's going to be much more difficult to really uh, attain certainty, you know. And, 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 in, and in civilization, in which the population has to have some degree of understanding of what's going on, that is a existential threat to to civilization. And, and there's not enough uh, focus on it, and it's it's an uphill battle to fight it. Okay,
0: so um, you talked about the Pursuance Project and how its uh, and what its role is going to be. Uh, in terms of um, you know people uh, fighting or you know going uh, uh, you know collaborating with each other uh, to uh, in pursuit of a common goal. So again, uh, could you shed some light on what the Pursuance project is all about and what your aims are?
1: Yes. So Pursuance, it, we're trying to solve several problems that we that we think are like the fundamental problems uh, of a citizenry in the 21st century, and that is. How do you get large amounts of people who agree on these basic ideals of an open society, who oppose the idea of the police state, the surveillance state, uh, that kind of thing? How do you get them together in a way that they can work together, you know, without any pre-existing relationships, where they can, they can define them for themselves, their working relationships, build entities that will efficiently harness their talents, harness the talents of others that can grow quickly and maintain that growth and, bec- and, and not grow burdensome? by becoming large, but rather become more agile, more refined as they grow larger. And we're solving that uh, by establishing this, this framework that's kind of based on a lot of what we've had the opportunity to see uh, both in regular institutions and inside movements like Anonymous and Telecomics and Project BM and all that, uh, and, 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 and Occupy Wall Street, that sort of thing. Uh, so we're trying to basically give people the, the tool set to decide for themselves what their role is going to be and who they're going to work with and in what way, and to put their ideas into practice. Uh, There's a lot of people, you know, who, for instance, would would like to join the Peace Corps, which is an American organization that uh, goes out and does uh, philanthropic work around the world, Uh, but you have to have a college degree. I myself don't have a college degree. I couldn't join the Peace Corps. Uh, There's people who have great ideas, uh, but they don't want to go trying to work at an institution. They don't want to hang out in office. They don't want to have to climb the ladder to get to the point where those ideas can be acted upon or heard. Uh, And we saw a lot of that in Anonymous, and we saw some extraordinary things come out of that. The campaign against SOPA was very much driven by Anonymous. Uh, again, some of these investigations, the thwarting of actual plots by actual intelligence agencies. Uh, but we also saw a lot of nonsense come out of Anonymous, and we, saw, and we saw eventually Anonymous sort of collapse under itself because of all the friction that arises when you have these ad hoc methods uh, of bringing people together without some kind of uh, mechanics in place uh, to, dis- to, to decide, you know, who's going to do what and, and who has the right, you know, uh, to be involved in, in what particular thing. Uh, so, so our solution is basically just is to is to first of all create an encrypted, secure space. Uh, which which right there, if you if you give people an encrypted space to organize people, you've already solved a lot of problems. There's people across the world who that we've worked with that uh, we've just met with at some in Toronto or some of our, our people did at uh, the a conference there. You know, Arab reformers, for instance, who were telling us, you know. It, if you just give us an encrypted, you know, encrypted software that, that we can use to organize people, that's all we want. We, all these other pictures are great, but that's what we need right now. Uh, because it's a matter of life and death uh, in many places. And elsewhere, it's a matter, you know, it's a matter of staying out of prison. Uh, elsewhere, it's a matter of a uh, successful project that, that gets thousands of people involved in, a, in in ways where people can really utilize their talents. Uh, and, and something that doesn't get off the ground. And, and so we want to address the, the fundamentals. We want to address the very means in which we're using the internet, which haven't really been updated drastically, uh, even at this this point, uh, 30 years after the public, you know, the internet becomes sort of a public resource, and so uh, we want we want to move the ball forward, and we want to get other people thinking about how to move the ball forward. We want to encourage other projects like this, uh, and uh, it's inevitable that these things will come about. It's the next uh, logical step uh, among people who are maybe not nationalistic, maybe they're more interested in certain values, maybe they have more in common with someone in Beijing than they do down the street. Uh, Those people should be able to work together and and to to pursue uh, important issues, you know, from large to small uh, across the board. Journalists should be able to get crowdsourcing research, uh, which has been proven uh, effective over and over again, especially compared to the kind of nonsense that, uh, that qualifies in U.S. news reporting. Uh, all of these things can be more easily achieved if, if we look at how they're done and, and we take that knowledge that we now have over the past 10 years and apply it into a single system that that no one's really in control of and that's and that's not uh, vulnerable to, you know, to a, to an attack or infiltration uh, in the ways that, that, you know, things based in servers are. And, and so we've, we've brought on a number of people. Uh, you know, Virginia John's daughter, the Icelandic member of parliament who was with WikiLeaks at the beginning, uh... You know, whistleblowers uh, in the U.S., uh, you know, lawyers, academics, uh, sort, of, sort of whose disciplines sort of are, con- are congruent with us. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of people are in a position to make sure that we're doing it right and that we're doing it securely, uh, and that this uh, that it actually works, that people actually use it.
0: All right, so that's something that's really awesome, and of course, uh, after uh, having um, uh, quite a good look at at the website and understanding uh, how the system is going to work. The one question I do have is what do you think of the conventional methods of, uh, let's say, encryption of, of your traffic when browsing or uh, the, uh, the hiding or kind of the changing of your identity when it comes down to IP addresses with, with a system like Tor, for example? So what are your thoughts on that and uh, what would be different with pursuance if, if someone were to ask themselves this question?
1: We have some, some very specific... Uh uh, answers to that kind of thing, as well as sort of sort of the the, the actual specs uh, up on GitHub, it uh, can be reached through our website at Uh I would answer more broadly, and the reason I do this is because I, I myself have no technical background, and although I've had to learn these things uh, from from usage and from from uh, doing this project, uh, I, I generally I, I don't want to say anything incorrect uh, about anything you know regarding this. So. So that, the specifics of that, uh, you should look at what our lead developer, Steve Phillips, ha- has uh, put out. Uh, but, but more broadly, I would say that we, what people need to understand is, uh, so, someone introduced me to a, a very interesting term the other day. It's called security nihilism. And it's something we run into uh, a lot when we, you know, we get criticized uh, by people here and there. Uh, the, the idea that because you can't attain 100% security, you shouldn't bother with it, uh, or that it's somehow silly to try it. Is is non- nonsense. It's 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 pseudo intellectual. It's a sort of you know it's pseudo security. It's it's security meta theater. Uh, you know, throughout the history of reform, politics, activism, you know, humanity itself, uh, there are degrees of risk and opportunity. And so, we feel responsible. Uh, we feel responsible to our users, our participants, to use the best current best practices, uh, as determined by an array of organizations, uh, some of which we work with, uh, and that's what we're doing. We're not, we're not developing our own uh, encryption. Our, our lead developers always always very quick to point out, because that's not best practice. The best practice is to take uh, out of the box uh, existing you know, best uh, versions of that. Uh, so our, our focus is very mainly on what you do with that encryption. You know, now you're encrypted, now you're secure, now what? How do you really make use of that? Uh, because we don't want people going back to Facebook uh, and organizing there. Uh, we don't want them to have to. Uh, we understand why they do it. I do it. I have a Facebook account. I use that to reach people. I use it understanding what Facebook is, uh, something that was you know backed in part by InQtel, the CIA's investment arm, along with Palantir. Uh, those are things that everyone should be aware of. Uh, ultimately, you know security is one part of the equation. the the other The other more important part is what are you doing with security? You know it's it's wonderful to be secure and we're we're providing it the best we can of pursuance. Uh, but beyond that, uh, anyone who walks into something like this, who does anything that rubs up against a powerful interest, has to be aware. that There's no such thing as 100% uh, foolproof security. That's that's true in real life activism. It's true, uh, street organizing. It's true in journalism. It's true on anything online. Uh, all we can really do is is make it more difficult uh, for for a very concerted, uh, resourceful actor to gain uh, valuable actual information from the things that we do but we have to do those things that's more important than avoiding the the, the uh, infiltration uh
0: definitely well said so uh you know again this is something that's really exciting uh, after taking a look at it and i'm sure uh, the people watching this will also uh, have a very keen eye for this so again uh when it comes down to uh, again just reading off your page uh we're talking about engagement uh, with pursuance uh, what type of uh, individuals are you looking for, or w- what type of engagement are you uh, are you kind of looking for, or w- w- what exactly do you want?
1: Anyone who agrees that an open society, without you know, who, 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 so so we we have this sort of set of, of ideological requirements that we ask people to ascribe to if they join the system. Now we don't we don't investigate people or interrogate them to make sure they, they have the same definitions as we do. The purpose of the requirements is to show this is not a content-neutral system. We're not trying to empower everyone. We're not trying to empower cops or fascists or that sort of thing. We're trying to empower a broad section of people who believe in the open society, who oppose the police state, however they understand that term, who oppose the drug war, however they understand that term, uh, who ascribe to the rights of human beings to, to engage in marriage, regardless of, of who they are. Uh, those are those are some arbitrary uh, values that we've we all agree on, and that we kind of put forth as guidelines. And so, anyone who ascribes those things and wants to be involved in their civics, uh, aside from or apart from uh, what they're already engaged in, uh, you know, the, you could work for an NGO, you could do volunteering work, you could vote, you can you know do well, that. That's great. And people should keep doing that because these systems still exist. We're trying to build a supplement to that, a sort of parallel network. Uh, scaffolding around the building of state. you know if you have a building that's uh, in disrepair it, it may be collapsing in some parts maybe it needs a paint job as well uh, you don't have to every, everyone doesn't have to agree on what the building should ultimately uh, we should ultimately do with it to start building scaffolding around it and get started on those parts that you do agree on and that's basically what pursuance is so to that end anyone you know there's certain kinds of people with backgrounds in activism journalism research uh, that we always love having but anyone any, any clever person who's honest And and, uh, feels that they have a duty uh, to maintain the kind of the the levels of civilization, the levels of freedom that we still have, uh, who feel that way because they know how much of what we have in that regard was provided to us by people who came before us. Those people who who are bothered uh, by the lack of an action right now, we want them to be able to come into something uh, safely, securely and effectively and get to work on these issues uh, in, in some of the ways sometimes in ways that we've kind of pioneered in the last 10 years with some of these online movements, sometimes in more traditional ways, uh, NGOs, a lot of nonprofits are joining up. Uh, some of them are partners on this. Uh, they'll establish these presences in the pursuant system to better make use of their, of their constituents, of their supporters, you know, beyond just asking them to sign a petition every couple of weeks by an email to really make use of these people who want to see things done. Uh, it, it's a question that it's, it's such a fundamental question. Uh, that we, we think it's worth solving uh, first and, and, you know, of how to do that, of how, of how to bring people into this, into this community, into, the, into this sort of uh, civil structure uh, and let them decide for themselves uh, based on consent and association, you know, who they are in this society and what they want to achieve and how they're going to do it. And, and we, know there's, we know that there's a lot that can be done via the Internet. We, know, we also know that if, the th- if we thought up these things, you know, 10 years ago, uh, imagine what 80,000 uh, very capable individuals and maybe 100,000 more not that capable individuals uh, could could think up and, and, and experiment with and achieve uh, if they're given the ability to do so.
0: All right. So, yeah, that uh, definitely makes a lot of sense and, uh, of course, hearing it from you, uh, you know, ideologically what this is all set up to be and what it's going to become. Uh, you also mentioned that you have um, pursuance on Kickstarter. So, uh Where can they find this? Or I'll actually be posting the links uh, on this podcast and on YouTube. So uh, if you want to check out the Kickstarter, you can. And uh, is there any other way that they can support you directly or um, maybe through uh, any any other type of uh, portal?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean they, they can also donate their bitcoins on our website. If you go to the PursuanceProject.org, there's a donations page. Uh, but in addition to that, we always want we've got about 1,900 people that have signed up so far to participate. 1,900 people and organizations. And so when we launch, you know, we're going to have a very good you know starting ground, a seed of people who who you know will start building pursuances, and the will, sales will invite in more people, and they'll invite more people, et cetera. That's how it would grow in in the main. But we want more uh, organizations. We want more individuals who have some skill or energy. Or information to come in to come in here to sign up at our website studentsproject.org, sign up to be notified of when we launch, and uh, and tell others that they that they think you know might be interested in this as well. This is not for everyone. There's a lot of people out there uh, who are not early adapters, you know, who who, who aren't interested in doing uh, thinking through you know better ways of doing things. But there are there are plenty that, that do, and we want all of them essentially. And uh, over time, we'll have a opportunity to get more of them. But right now, uh, the the better population we start with. Uh, the better this would grow. All right. So yeah,
0: that's um, essentially what uh, I wanted to go um, to, to look at with uh, with you on, on hand. And obviously, you've explained everything that I sh- I think uh, was important uh, in regards to pursuance. Do you have anything else that you would like to add um, in regards to pursuance and uh, how you expect the future to be uh, for this project and for uh, you know for security in general?
1: Uh, over the next several decades, there's going to be increasing conflict uh, among nation states as nationalism sort of resurges, and between nation states and, and these emergent groups, uh, pursuance, things like that. Uh, there will be a lot more of these. Uh, some of them will be will be malicious. Some of them will be, uh, you know, the alt right uh, in the U.S. and England and, and parts of Europe, uh, just just like you know certain ultra nationalists in India or, or everywhere, anywhere else. Uh, these people are learning to use the internet, and they're taking they're taking the initiative, and they're they're getting better at spreading their message and achieving their aims. Uh, this this uh, project, you know, aside from sort of excluding them through procedurally by the way it's built, uh, I think it's also less useful for them over time because it doesn't take that many people to make up a lie and spread it. It does take a lot of people coordinated very well to find out the truth uh, and to act on it. And so we think that ultimately these kind of systems will be better for the open society people than they will be for uh, the fastest, or, or anything like that, uh, but there will be a lot of bizarre conflicts. Uh, th- they'll be hard to imagine now. They will take strange forms. Uh, they will grow out of this. These generations that are being raised on the internet, and whose whose brains were essentially wired differently than our than previous generations. Uh, you and me are probably you know we're, we're among the last generation that probably drew up you know as children before the internet was was heavily existent, yeah. you know, and then came of age you know continues as it. You know came, came to be and so uh, that's that's done for everyone uh you know in the west and most of the developed world and increasingly elsewhere uh will have that as part of their lives and uh as that happens we want to be ready we want to be ready for whatever comes of that uh that's that's the main uh, argument for pursuance is that uh we are entering very uncertain times and that's something that no one can doubt anymore and so having a system uh having a network a formidable network that can grow and eventually take on uh, new uh, tasks for itself and eventually confront criminalized institutions. Uh, That's important to start building now. All right. And
0: before we end this, you did mention something very interesting uh, when you talked about the rise of nationalism. What do you think has given a rise to, to this, especially now more than ever, after, you can say, a period of of when individuals looked at, uh, at society differently. What, what do you think has given a rise to this? And, of course, you also mentioned that Internet is going to be uh, kind of the, the, the tool that will be used uh, for, you know, for, for collaboration and, and obviously for pushing these nationalistic ideas forward.
1: I'm not exactly sure what what the causes are uh, outside of the U.S. Even in the U.S., it's, a, it's sometimes a little confusing to figure it out, trace it back. There, there are some there are some sort of elements there that are that are clear, that, that are more obvious than others. Uh, some of them have to do with with uh, particularly conservative whites in this country who see themselves more and more the minority, and that makes them defensive, and they're more likely to to. But the the, the U.S. Uh, has always had a very troubled population. It's always had a, a a uh, you know, a large portion of people who are very open to uh, crimes beyond imagination uh, for different reasons. Uh, for religious reasons uh, that they don't consider to be malicious, uh, natural security reasons, that's always been the case. Uh, there, there was a degree of decorum, there was sort of a degree, there was a degree of control by the sort of establishment that was largely imperfect and oftentimes part of the problem, uh, but that, that at least kept things within a certain limit uh, and that establishment has lost power, in part because of the Internet. Uh, and so it's being, it, it's, because of its failures uh, in various respects, and because, because of its devastating failures to the rest of the world in many cases, uh, it has, it has left the door open. And it's left the door open not just to those of us trying to replace it with something better uh, and freer and more responsible, but with those trying to replace it with something uh, uh, more along out of the dark ages. And so this is not unprecedented. Uh, we've seen these kind of things before in human history, uh, in you know, many historical nations, particularly the Roman Empire, which we happen to know a great deal because of its record-keeping. Uh, we, we know we, we've seen deterioration before. We've seen sort of cultural deterioration, the, the lack of civic virtue and that kind of thing. Uh, it would if, if America were to succumb in a very real way, uh, it would not be unprecedented, and historically it might not even be uh, surprising. All right so um uh,
0: just before again sorry about that but before we end you you talk about uh, the the breakdown or entropy if you will of uh, of society uh do, do you think that uh, this will be again something very common that will be will be facing uh, around the world not just uh you know uh, when we talk about the west uh the general breakdown and the rebuilding of society
1: uh, well it's very possible that, uh, that a larger portion uh you know, of the East, may uh, pursue a, a sort of authoritarian, uh, you know, kind of structured capitalism that uh, will ultimately be capable in some ways of responding better uh, than, than in more democratic nations to certain things. But in doing so, they, they obviously they fall into the same trap as any authoritarian uh, population does. I just I don't know enough, you know, it, it, I've stopped trying to predict things in specific instances. All I can really say for certain is that there will be you know we're going for more chaotic times, but they, people have surprised me so often. Uh, I've, I've, what I've learned as I've grown older is that I really don't know what people think, and I really don't know how they're going to react in most cases. Uh, and so, having said that, you know there are some trends you can see, and and the question is, are these trends that will last? or can we extrapolate from them or there or will there be a reaction as there all usually is eventually? Uh, you know, and so uh, again, I can just I can just say that there, things will get more complicated because of the internet and because of of the potential that's that's unrealized right now, but is is vast and, and will soon be kind of understood by more people. The potential to establish polities beyond geography, uh, real polities, not just clubs, not just groups that knock out a few companies here and there like Anonymous, uh, but actual viable organizations uh, uh, capable of defending people's rights in ways that governments historically have not chosen to do all right so again uh,
0: some very interesting points you've pointed out uh, in regards not just to uh, the uh, pursuance project but in regards to how uh, the future is going to be with data and security so um, that's uh, that's going to be it for this uh, podcast Uh, thank you very much for joining me Uh, I really appreciate and uh, I'm very grateful for the opportunity of speaking Uh, to someone like you. So again, a huge thank you uh, for joining me on the podcast. Uh, Did you have anything else that you would like to add before we conclude?
1: Uh, No, that's it. Just uh, people, you know, if you learn more, you can go to pursuanceproject.org, you can Google Pursuance uh, Observer. There's a good article in the Observer about some of the crowdsourcing techniques. There's a few videos here and there we've made. Uh, I appreciate you having me on. It was a a very good talk. I appreciate your questions. And uh, anyone uh, who who wants to learn more should do so and, and, you know, uh, it, it's important uh, if you don't have a strategy. If, I mean, if, if, if anyone out there is confident in our structures to to shepherd us through the next 50 years, then, then keep doing what you're doing. If you have an inkling that these structures may not be sufficient and that they might be dangerous, uh, then I would invite you to come look at what our plan is. All right.
0: So again, thank you so much for joining me uh, for the podcast. And uh, if you are interested in the Pursuance Project, you can uh, check out the links. They will be uh, in the podcast feed and on the YouTube video in the uh, in the comment in the description of the video. So thank you again uh, for joining me and uh, I'll be seeing you uh, in the next episode. Thank you for watching the hackerploit podcast I hope you enjoyed and I'll be seeing you in the next episode.